Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty. That means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script and No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I've been interviewing extraordinary people from all walks of life for the past 20 years as an unscripted television producer and before that as a small town sports reporter. Each episode, I talk to talented people from the worlds of documentaries, reality TV, true crime, game shows, sports, business, and much more. If you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe, download, and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. I'm excited to be back recording at Real Voice LA today for the first time in about a year. So let's get things started. My guest today is Ashley DeTonto. She is the Senior Vice President of Development at Trailblazer Studios and an executive producer of two documentaries on the 1921 Tulsa Massacre. She's previously held posts at Fremantle, The Gurren Company, and TLC. Ashley, thanks for being here. Well, let, let um, me just start with Trailblazer. They're located in Raleigh, and then you're working remotely. Tell me a little bit about how that kind of works in terms of, you know, the multiple offices and not being, you know, you're not a big New York production company. You're not a big L.A. production company, but you all have found a way to be competitive. You've got two big uh, documentary projects about the Tulsa Massacre, one on Nat Geo and one on OWN. What what do you all do to stay competitive? Tell me a little bit about Trailblazer. Trailblazer's been around for 20 years and 20 years this year, actually. We're celebrating our anniversary in December. And I think them being remote from New York and LA was, you know, obviously has its challenges, but made it unique in that they've always kind of been ahead of the curve on how to work remotely. Um, they've always been able to say, we want to have the work-life experience of what it's like down in the South, but also be able to have talent from across the country. And I think that's, you know, was something really inspiring by of them to look outside of Raleigh for their development person, knowing that there, when I was starting there, it was Katie Roan and she was um, in Kentucky. So I, she didn't care that I was in New York. And we just always worked over videos and we'd meet at the office, you know, at least once a quarter. And it just sort of works. I mean, if anybody who's been in development, I remember I used to drive to the Valley from Venice Beach every day, hour and a half in the car, both ways <laughs> to sit in an office by myself yep. and be on my computer. Yeah. I was a hermit, you know? Oh, yeah. So it doesn't you don't really need that. And then pitching. I mean, yeah, of course, I can go into New York and pitch. I could fly to L.A. to pitch. And now, I mean everything's just so different. I, I think COVID really sure. helped us in that everyone's used to doing the pitches over the computer yeah. now. So I yeah. hope that never changes and I don't have to fly to LA to pitch or put my clothes on and go into the city because that commute is hell. 
bridge and tunnel right here. Oh, yeah. But yeah, and I think as far as, you know, how they've survived all this time is they're just an incredible post and production house, first and foremost. That was kind of what their bread and butter was and um, got into original programming a bit later. And so they've been able to deliver over like a thousand hours over the last 20 years. Everything from, you know, documentary films to uh, they started doing figure eight. Um, They had a relationship partnership with them doing a lot of the production and post and delivering to the networks for uh, almost all of their uh, docu-series. So that was kind of how they got their start. And they always, you know, respect and honor figure eight for trusting them. That relationship has been really special for uh, Trailblazer. And they've kind of, you know, we've grown since then, but that's kind of what got us into reality and unscripted. I've done a handful of panels with, you know, college students, or I actually just did one for the my college, uh, Washington University in St. Louis. And some of those students will ask, do we have to move to LA? Do we have to move to New York? What do you tell people? Do you say, oh, it's better to move to New York or it's better to be in LA? Or do you feel like it's okay to be in Raleigh or, or Knoxville or some other city? That's a hard question because that's I feel what like I do. In be- that's what I do. I ask tough questions. <laughs> um, so I, I feel like maybe five years ago, I would have said, just, you have to go there. You know, I studied abroad in Los Angeles. You know, you're given three months to spend your parents' money and go live in another country. And I chose Los Angeles, <laughs> but, um, I felt like that's what I needed to do to get the job and the life that I wanted was I wanted to work in the industry. And so all of my professors for that program were like, you have to move here if you want to work here. I don't know. I think there's plenty of jobs in New York and LA. I think it's going to be harder for an entry-level person to do the remote life unless you're an editor or somebody who works. Um, Then you have to have all that equipment and everything kind of set up for you. I think there is something to be said about, you know, I keep all the back and forth about should we go back to the office? Shouldn't we? And I just keep thinking about all the these entry level people who like, how else are you going to learn if you're yeah. not around everybody? Yeah. And I'm not saying I'm a proponent of going to the office. Clearly, I'm just <laughs> saying that I, if I was starting out, I would feel like I had a disadvantage if I couldn't go into an office as an assistant and kind of be that sponge and learn. So it'll be interesting to see how that level kind of handles it for our industry, at least. The learning aspect know. is a great point, though. Uh, because that is how you, that's how you make contacts. That's also how you really learn is being able to, to look over an editor's shoulder and see what they're doing or to be, you know, in, in, a, in a development meeting and see how yeah. that and brainstorming. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, I guess you could get on the Zoom, but just, or even just that like assistant camaraderie of being like, you know, working those 16 hour days. And I don't know, maybe that's a lifestyle that I'm romanticizing right now because I definitely didn't love it then. It's a good point though, because when I look at where I started and it, it was those, those days of grinding things out, learning, uh, learning story you know, with editors and other story producers when I was an AP or as a story producer mm-hmm. working with supervising producers. Those were the the days and there's no way I could have done that remotely because they would call me into screenings. They would let me, you right. know, yeah, they would let me pull bites after a screening and those were instrumental in me being able to learn. But also then, they, you know, you would have executive producers who would see how hard I worked and then they would ask me to stick around and do the next exactly. show. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good kind point. Of, 
Yeah. And again, they're just being pulled into a room. I mean, yeah. how many meetings do you get pulled in and you learn something just by listening? It's a, Yeah, it's a great point. Because I, I do feel like, to, to your point about editors, I've heard from a lot of editors who don't want to go back. Like, they really enjoy the freedom to be able to cut whenever yeah. they want. Yeah. I think if you're a maker and you already have the contacts and the network, yeah, who yeah. would want to go back? I mean, I, I, at this point in my life, I'm like, yeah, I don't need to. <laughs> I mean, of course, you could go to some drinks and some networking events, sure. but like, I don't need the day to day. Sure. Let's talk about these two uh, Black Wall Street documentaries. As I said, yes. you have The Legacy of Black Wall Street, which is a two parter for OWN and then goes to Discovery Plus. And you have Rise Again. Tulsa and the Red Summer, which is for Nat Geo. Let's start with uh, Legacy of Black Wall Street, which is the two-parter for OWN. And it premiered, the first part premiered on June 1st. And then the second part was June 8th. Correct. Okay. And so now people can- So now can... both episodes are streaming on Discovery+. Plus. Terrific. As Trailblazer, what what attracted you as a, as a development executive and as, as the company to take on these two big- unique projects. I mean, it's kind of rare for a company to say, well, we're not just going to do one project about a topic. We're going to do two. What what attracted you to tell this story? I mean, it's interesting. I, I don't think we went into it knowing that that's what was going to happen. But the more we learned about the massacre and Black Wall Street and Red Summer, I mean, there's enough to cover, you know, 20 different docs. So I don't think there was ever a question of could we, you know, could we do both? I mean, there was by the networks, but I made a very detailed Excel sheet showing the differences. But it really started in 2019. We were invited by the Centennial Commission to the Greenwood Cultural Center in Tulsa. Um, They were interested in potentially funding their own documentary. And we went there and got a ridiculous oral history that just blew us away and we couldn't believe we didn't know it. And we left there and, you know, developed this whole project and presented it to them. And then COVID hit and um, it wasn't something that they could fund anymore, but we felt really connected to the project and that it should be told and figured why not at least see if the networks will respond. So we went out and pitched and I... (laughs) got every door slammed in my face in April. Um, Wow. Okay. Which I think, you know, a lot of the, the other filmmakers, they started back in 2017 trying to do this, trying to fund it themselves. And, you know, I think all of us kind of struggled and I don't know how to say this other than I feel like I really learned my, my white privilege at that point. um, Just in that, you know, I was shocked by all the no's and responses and my black colleague was not. But the responses were, it's too small a story. We don't know where to put it. Uh, we're not doing, you know, limited runs, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, George Floyd happened. Right. And rightfully so, perceptions changed. And then all of us got our own Tulsa docs. Um, Seven, <laughs> as right? As we used to joke, yeah. you get a Tulsa doc and yeah. you get a Tulsa doc. Um, yeah. And I literally got Oprah's Tulsa doc. The Nat Geo one was actually first and they were, when the grave dig was happening, this was something they were internally developing. Uh, and they attached Dawn Porter, who we had actually been speaking to for our project, um, but she's uh, she let us you know, use her name and pitches and things. Um, but so when Nat Geo reached out to her, she was like, yeah, definitely let's, Let's do this all together. And so Trilogy, and which is Don Porter's company, and Deneen Brown, who Nat Geo 
wanted to have as like the focal of this. They were all kind of put together. They brought us on to kind of be the production support. And we handled all of the post and delivery. And that was how that project kind of came together. But because it wasn't the project that we had pitched to Nat Geo or anyone, Chris Weber over at Nat Geo Studios graciously let us continue to pitch our project. Wow. Um, okay. She understood that it was a very different focus. And so when Own showed interest, I was very honest and upfront with Robin Latiker Johnson at the time, and she appreciated the transparency. I created that Excel document showing her the differences, and we brought Deborah Riley Draper on board as our director. And from there, I mean, the points of view were naturally different because um, two different filmmakers. Yes, it was a lot. <laughs> um, it, it was a crazy Christmas winter. I think it feels like we were running at a million miles up until yesterday. But it feels really, um, we're, we're just really proud to tell this story and with the people that we've told it with. It's as important of a story right now as there as there is because it's something that we should know about and we didn't learn about it. And I think that's a perfect, mm -hmm. it's a perfect example of the type of, of history that we need to know about. And you know, I think what blew me away the most when I was getting the history lesson from the commission was everything that led up to the massacre. I think that's what actually is kind of pointed out in both of these docs. I think what's incredible about Red Summer is that there, we knew there were gonna be multiple Tulsa docs, but knowing a, the holistic look at all of these massacres from Red Summer up until Tulsa is what really explains how the massacre could happen and why it could be erased from history. You know, understanding that climate of racism, um, I think was important that, you know, we wanted to kind of dive into that in that project, knowing that the others wouldn't as much. Knowing that you only have so much time, too, that every doc was only going to have one or two hours, how right. much history can you get into? Right. And I think that was for own, you know, knowing that we wanted to really talk about these pioneers and who they were as people and how they pulled this off, you know, despite all of the odds, one generation away from slavery, doing things that people, you know, can't imagine doing today owning a franchise of movie theaters and, you know, doing microloans and doing things you have to learn in business school. We wanted to know about them, but we really also wanted to know how did they get there? And I think that history is what was even crazier to us, that there were Native Americans, that the Native Americans, the reason that there's even Black people in Tulsa is because the Native Americans brought them as their slaves on the yeah. Trail of Tears and not all Native Americans, no, um, but the yeah, five tribes. Correct. All of that history was really important to me and really important to the director. And so I think, um, thankfully, Own also saw it as something that was really interesting and important to share. I will say we originally had it at like 10 minutes, two acts, and we had to cut it down to, yeah. you know, five minutes in the first act, not even, which is difficult to do all of that. It could have its own documentary, but we were happy that we were able to at least share that and, you know, explain how to go from the Trail of Tears to oil being discovered right. um, in five minutes, I think was literally that first act took us like a month to get right because there was just so much to share and so much that we wanted to say. And that was really important to us. And it's tough, you know, being on own, this is unlike anything they've ever done. They will say that wanting to trust that their audience would, you know, be interested and watch this, even if it doesn't look like everything else that's on their network. 
That's very true. I mean, they do a lot of dating shows. Uh, they do a Yanla. So this is this is definitely different for them. There's five main characters that uh, the legacy of Black Wall Street follows: Lula Williams, Augusta Stratford, Dr. Andrew C. Jackson, Drusilla Dungy Houston, and A.J. Smitherman. Why were these the <laughs> five characters that you chose to really follow? So we had a two-week writer's room, which is unlike anything I've ever done before, but it's how Deborah works. It's incredible. It was, honestly, it was the best two weeks I've had. And it was mostly researching, and it was oddly but wonderfully a room full of women over Zoom every night for two or three hours getting together at the end of the day to fit into, you know, mom life and just researching, bringing stories to the table and really digging into, you know, we were reading newspapers from the 1900s on newspapers.com and we're looking at old manuscripts and we're trying to find kernels of information that felt, you know, like humanity and, you know, reading about their social clubs and um, different uh, groupings that they had together. Um, and that's where we, these names kept popping up of also who, you know, were the pioneers, but also who were really the leaders of the community. And each of them had, I would say, something that really drew us to them. And a lot of it was their writings. Almost all of them were poets or writers, if it was a newspaper journalist. And we wanted to use their writings. We wanted to hear their voices. That was what we always said is like, what's the best way to, you know, really get these people's lives across is through their words. And so I think knowing that we had a treasure trove of writings from A.J. Smitherin, from his great-granddaughter, Raven, um, and, and all the newspaper articles he had written. And Drusilla was a journalist at a competing newspaper, but she always covered the Greenwood Beat. Um, and she had written this poem about uh, sleeping over a volcano that just moved us completely. I think it took, you know, we spent 30 minutes talking about that poem in one writer's room. Um, and we used it at the opening of the second episode. You know, Dr. Jackson, I feel like we all just, we loved the idea of him, you know, being this profound, famous physician who was happened to be in Tulsa. Um, and he's the only one from the grouping that we chose who didn't survive the massacre. All the others, you know, we also had to tell their stories of how they survived after. Yeah. Um, and I think that was different too, because that's what we wanted to get across as well in our doc is that if you weren't murdered, your life was still ruined. Um, even for Lula Williams, who had a franchise movie theaters, rebuilt them, but right. her great grandkids say that she was just never the same. You know, they talk about having some mental issues and I'm like, yeah, I would imagine. And having money troubles and having to send their son out because they were afraid for him to still be there, but not being able to show if they could afford college anymore, it, even though they were the height of their society. Um, yeah, it was a humbling experience getting to kind of live with these five people for the last few months and get to know their family. That was the craziest thing was, you know, reaching out to some of their family after having spent all this time with them and kind of geeking out and being like, oh my God, you're the descendant of a legend. Right. <laughs> and I think they yeah. were touched because, you know, either nobody knows that or um, all they ever talk about is the massacre. And so, you know, we're talking about things like, oh my God, Lula's, you know, marketing prowess and how she had buttons and she had compact mirrors with her name on it. And they're like, wow. And we're like showing them the ads that we found in newspapers. And it, it's just been kind of an incredible experience. 
What is the mentality with the descendants now? It's very mixed. Um, I would say still super raw and emotional. And I think that's just from the very fact that they haven't been able to really heal because it's either been silenced or exploited. Um, and I, you know, I think for us, at least with the own dog, that's why we also wanted to focus on speaking. Like if we're going to hear and use the words of these people, we want to also speak to their descendants and make sure they're okay with that. Um, and I know for Raven, she's fighting now against any exploitation of her. She runs the foundation of AJ Smitherman and she wants to get his story out there as many times and um, as creatively as she can through film and books um, and this documentary and wants to fight against and make it illegal for other people to have used him and his story and his words without her consent and her family's consent. Others, I feel, you know, Lula's family, they, I, you know, I think they're a large group and they were very mixed. They've been very hurt by this. You know, their, their story has been used so many times by so many people, including uh, Lovecraft Country and, yeah. you know, the Dreamland Theater is what most people, you know, knew about before they knew about Tulsa and nobody has ever reached out to them. Um, and so I don't know that everyone's looking for what everyone thinks of it as, as a payout, but I think that there is something that needs to be said and done. And I don't think anybody has an answer. And it's just so, like I said, emotional and wrong. I think that's what makes it a really difficult conversation. Um, because you can't take the emotion out of it and you shouldn't, but it's hard to make big decisions like that, that a government has to make essentially. They're the ones who kind of owe the city of Tulsa owes them. And that's really tough. What would Greenwood be like today had this not happened? What would Tulsa be like today had this not happened? Ugh. My first conversation with Deborah, I'll never forget it. Cause she was like, what if we didn't trade on the Dow? What if we traded on the BWS? And I was like, holy shit, Deborah, you just blew my mind. Yeah. Um, and I think it's that kind of thinking. You yeah. know, when I pitched this to history, I, you know, replied to their passing, don't you think that the men who built America might look a little differently? Yeah. Had this story not been erased from history? Isn't it our duty to, to tell this story? of all places on your network. And thankfully they did um, end yeah. up doing Stanley Nelson's. Right. But yeah, I think that there's no way of telling, but I personally believe that it, you know, they would have competed with the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts of the world. Um, and we say that in this, you know, in the second part. And that was, you know, cause that was a conversation we had in one of our writers rooms was that what if, and you know, it was great to hear from the historians who agreed with us that they would have rivaled with them. And I just think our history would have looked a lot different. The thing that is also hard with that what if is that they did come back just a year, two years later, better than ever. They were thriving in the 40s. Um, but then urban renewal came, uh, the ending of Jim Crow laws, the money wasn't circulating within their community anymore. Um, a number of reasons, but still systemic racism so it's not to say that that if the massacre hadn't happened, but I think there would have been a power in numbers. They were, they came back, but they were traumatized and they still had lost all that 
money and wealth from before that they were never able to bring back. Proper, they had to spend yeah. all the money to yeah. rebuild. So like, of what if had that, you know? Right. It's, yeah. And no accountability. Well, they had to rebuild and work around people who they knew yeah. a couple months prior had burned their lot down. They were, you know, walking by people who were wearing their clothes and, uh, you know, looted their homes. It's incredible what they endured. And it's, uh, yeah. Let's talk about the second doc, Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer. This premieres on June 18th on Nat Geo. Uh, it follows journalist Deneen Brown. She will dig into the events that led to the Tulsa massacre. And it is directed, as you said, by Dom Porter. So tell me a little bit about what's the difference here. Obviously, this is driven by Deneen Brown, and Dom Porter has a very distinct POV. She did The Way I See It. She did Good Trouble, which was a documentary about John Lewis. Tell me how this is going to be different, why people would want to see this one, as well as uh, the documentary on OWN. Well, first of all, Dawn Porter is, you know, incredible. And Deneen has such a personal relationship to this story and that she wrote an article that kind of reinvigorated the mass grave dig. And so having her be the one who's kind of following that story as it's unfolding, and that was crazy too. You know, we got, before we even had the official green light from Nat Geo, Dawn and her team were on the ground and we were trying to coordinate um, interviews because the first dig was happening um, last July, I want to say. Just in that, you know, following a present day story um, in Verite and DocuFollow with Deneen and also going to these other cities where these massacres had happened, we knew it was going to be a very different story. And so the grave dig was kind of this backbone for the documentary. The grave dig, the mass grave dig and the mystery of that and, you know, the answers that may or may not come out of that and the whole conspiracy to not, you know, find those bodies and what that would mean if they did or didn't for the story, because there are those who still believe it's just a riot and only 40 people, right. you know, died and it's not a big deal. So there's a lot layered into that mass grave dig. And even today, they just announced they found 29 new coffins. They don't know if it's connected to the mass graves or not, but still, it's just an ongoing story. And so, um, again, I think that story, along with the environment leading up to Tulsa, I mean, knowing that, I think that's the other commentary that we get sometimes is it's not just Tulsa and it's like no of course not it's I mean Tulsa was the biggest though the, the most egregious but there were 25 other massacres that happened between 1918 into 1925 right um all ranging in you know anywhere from 12 to 40 people being murdered you know being in the guise of a uh, a riot or an incident because of, you know, protesting a lynching or something right. or just one small incident that pissed somebody off. And that environment and seeing all of those massacres go unaccounted for allowed there to be this environment of white people along with, you know, the president showing the birth of a nation, you know, that there could be violent racism and you'd get away with it. That was President Woodrow Wilson showing birth of a nation, which glorified the Ku Klux Klan at the White House. These are events that happened and that people should know about, and it's why it's important for people to watch a documentary like this, and it's great that Trailblazer is doing this. I know for me, right, from, from a storytelling perspective, these types of stories are very difficult, but they're very rewarding 
for you to see mm. these two stories come out from Trailblazer, how does it, you know, how do, it's a very generic question, but how does that make you feel to be able <laughs> to put these types of stories out into the world? Thankful and humbled and honored. I, you know, these are my first two uh, executive producer credits. And if you had asked me 10 years ago, if that's what I thought they would be, I no. Um, you know, I was working in game shows. So I, I feel very, uh, it's gratifying and fulfilling. And I feel like I've found my like purpose um, in telling stories like this. And so honestly, I, you know, when we started working on this in 2019, since then my slate has turned into just more and more mission driven projects. And I think, you know, Tulsa had a lot to do with that because I had to put pour so much of myself into it to get it sold and then to make it. Uh, I never tired of it though. And I think that, you know, woke me up a bit knowing that I was spending 45 hours a week doing something, you know, that I loved, but like to feel this fulfilled, I didn't know it could get better. Yeah, it's been incredible. And I hope that it means that it'll be, you know, something that helps Trailblazer or myself sell more projects like this. Yeah. You know, seeing that we can do these historical, um, important projects. You use that phrase, mission-driven projects, right? And mm -hmm. we both know as developers mm -hmm. that- Cringeworthy. Yes. <laughs> look, 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 we are, you know, if, if you are the type of storyteller that wants to tell these great stories of fighting against you know, fighting against the man, for lack of a better phrase, fighting against, you know, wrongdoing, evil, that sort of thing. Um, sometimes those are, you know, people can rally. Sometimes a platform or a network might rally around that. And a lot of times they may be scared or they may say, uh, there's not an audience for that. Tell me a little bit about your approach to now, now that you've seen how to rally around uh, a topic and get people to buy a project that is mission driven. What is your approach to getting a buyer excited about a project, you know, that is mission driven, that is doing, you know, telling a tough story, but you know, in your heart, this is a story that needs to be told. I mean, it's not easy. I think um, it comes with a lot of patience um, and persistence. I, I tend to be a dog with a bone with, these projects because I love them. And so even if there's some kind of hesitation, if I see an opening, a way to tweak it, at the end of the day, it's about however you can create the chocolate covered broccoli. You know, I come from <laughs> reality background. Yeah. And so I, I think I try to, you know, use that background of, okay, well, what is the format that we can sell this topic? And so, and it also, I think helps when you, a big thing that I shifted on this late was partnerships. What can I attach? What can I bring to this project that will break through the noise, will give it some sort of IP um, and buzz? And, you know, the Reuters project for the body trade, that started with us pitching it as a true crime story set in Sunset Mesa um, funeral home in Montrose, Colorado. And we got the 12 victims locked up and we did all the Skypes. We did all the old school things that you do. Right. But it was at a time when I would say that, you know, true crime, it's, you really got to bring the shock and awe and gore. And oh, yeah. this is a project about, you know, what we say is murder after death. So, um, 
you know, a lot of the responses was it's not shocking enough. I was like, all right, let's make it bigger. And we we reached out to the Reuters journalist who did this investigation and it blew this story up. And the, like this Sunset Mesa story only happened because Reuters wrote their investigation, which, you know, blew our minds. And then these three journalists just keep telling us more and more and that they actually have footage of their two-year investigation, including an interview with this insane funeral home director. And we're just like, our minds are blown. So we were like, all right, we got to stop down. I mean, it took a while to get that deal done. Let me tell you what it's like to be the first of anything. Yeah. (laughs) Reuters has never done anything like this. And so there, you know, it was a lot of just explaining and being patient and slow. And when we finally got the deal signed, we stopped down and we said, okay, let's, let's reevaluate. Let's figure out what this project is going to be. And so we're now going back out with it in this new form, knowing that we have these, you know, found footage, which, you know, is everybody's dream. And I think that's just one, one story. Cause I mean, it started out with us, just our hearts broke. We spent three weeks talking to victims who cried to us for hours. I mean, these are people whose daughters were, you know, stolen from them and they were given cement who, I mean, the stories were insane and we thought that was enough and we, our hearts bled for these people. And so we've now formed a relationship with them because it's going on two years, (laughs) but some projects are like that. And I would say that my biggest strategy is always like, what can we attach or do to things? And I think at times it's maybe slower than, um, everyone would like but of I, course i truly believe that it, it's worth it it first impressions are everything um with going out to the networks so yeah you only get you only get one shot you really do yeah. i mean going out and like repitching this it's only because we have this ip and these journalists and this whole right. new story otherwise you know there are just some of those projects those great white buffaloes i really like that phrase chocolate covered broccoli i'm going to steal that I am. Yes, <laughs> please I, do. I'm yeah. totally going to steal that. So you've mentioned a couple times that you have done reality, starting reality. You mentioned doing game shows. So I think it's worth exploring the track of your career. You seem very, you seem really excited right now telling these types of stories like the, the, the Black Wall Street type story and the body trade. What my first professor that who I love truly um, in my, you know, I got a BS in TV as my dad loves to joke. Uh, your first job is not your career. And I always say, thank goodness for that because my first job was in porn. Um, I literally, Oh my God. I was in pay-per-view porn. Um, I was a programming assistant. Okay. Yeah. You should clarify that. Yes. You should definitely clarify. Well, I know. I always love to start though. I was, I was a real winner at bars when I, you know, was in my twenties Yeah, just starting to work. Yeah, I literally had to pick the titles and how many times they got played. We It was me and two other women running the department, and we got gift baskets and gift cards and wined and dined because the suppliers only got um, as many plays as we gave them. So um, it was such an incredible first job. And it was in Soho in New York, and it was one of those, like, you know, movie moments but then i had interned at e and i got a phone call from a friend who was an assistant there he was getting promoted and said do you want my job um another dream moment and so i you know flew out there did an interview at a you know over brunch very la 
and got the job on the spot, flew out two weeks later, was living with a 75-year-old woman in Park La Brea across the street from the E-building. Um, she tried to commit suicide twice while I was there. So it was like I could literally write a movie about my start in L.A. Yeah. Um, maybe don't use that. I don't know. <laughs> I, I Wow. Uh, well, I just want to say uh, <laughs> that your porn job was not – in your IMDb credits. No. So I, I just want to make it clear. That's why I didn't know about well, like, actually, you know. I think my first IMDb credit was, was it the, the Yule log. Um, and that was at ID network, which is where I worked. Um, because I had to help like string out the photos that were used in our HD Yule log. Anyway, um, <laughs> it also, I worked with the Howard Stern team because we distributed their, um, their show, the Howard Stern show after it left E ironically. Got it. Um, and so it was great. My Christmas parties were with the Howard Stern crew and uh, me and Mike Ganji were friends. We we're drinking. I don't know if anybody listens to Stern, but it was great. So but, you, yeah, moving you, to LA yeah, and that's how I started my career. You survived and, um, porn. You, then survived. you survived a, 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 a roommate who was trying to commit suicide. It, it was all up from And there. I survived E. And you survived. I probably shouldn't admit that, but uh, not the place for me. I probably should have known the trajectory of my life when I couldn't stand having to read Huss Weekly as research. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> one of the execs was going over to TLC and asked me to go with him as his assistant, um, Brent Zaki, who is still one of my favorite humans and mentors ever. And I worked at TLC for almost five years and loved it. I loved my team. It was um, an incredible team of people. And we were like family, honestly. I grew up there. I always say like, you know, I grew up on the network side. I probably did things a little backwards. You know, I was 20 something with a 401k and living this cushy life with benefits. And that was kind of my, my problem. I felt like I was starting to get to that point on the network side where I had to tell producers what to do and I'd never done it. And I just, I, I just, it didn't sit well with me. So I decided I want to go and see the other side of things. And that's when I went over to the Gurn company and I loved the production side. I loved that the world was your oyster and it was this world of yes, until you got so many no's, but um, and very for- different from the network side where you're praised for how you pass. Um, and because you're getting a thousand pitches a quarter. Hold on for one second. Pass. Hold on. Hold on. You got, Okay. Did you just say that on the network side, you're praised for how you pass? Yes. Okay. I'm not going to just <laughs> let that one go. Okay. I mean, I can't tell you as a coordinator how many times. Yes. Me and the other coordinator, Eric Powell, who's um, still at TLC, we were, you know, I think because we were young, we were dismissed, but we, we saw the potential in a lot of things. And, you know, they didn't. They'd be like, oh, okay, here we go. Um, it's, it's a world of no, it really is. And also the second you find any kind of victory, you know, then the ratings come out and then whichever, whatever way the the ratings go, if it's poor, then it's a finger pointing game. You know, it was your project that you developed and you developed a shit problem. It's like, oh, you, you know, killed it in production or whatever it is. It's just, it's not the environment for me. Right. Um, and I, I fell in love with, you know, it's hard. There's anxiety of, you know, you get 
said no to a lot, but I actually found that easier than having to say no. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, I yeah. loved that. That's the idea of, you know, every day was different and I got to just spend my day creating and making stuff up and making up the materials to help sell that. I love it. And for people who don't know, you worked for the Gurren Company. Phil Gurren is a legend as, you know, in the game show stage Another incredible space. human who I love and adore as a mentor. What was it that you got out of working with Phil and then kind of where did you go from there? What didn't I learn? I... I I would say I learned, I grew up on the network side learning um, how the networks work, which I will say I feel like is a tool that I have now, even being this many years outside of things, just understanding how long it takes, how many meetings, how political, how corporate, and just having that background was really helpful when, you know, going into this side of the business. But what I learned from Phil is everything with, you know, development. It's, he's a perfectionist and every pitch, I mean, he's, we, I, we call it jazz hands. I mean, he goes into a room and he just, he does his thing and it seems so natural, but it's rehearsed. Um, you know, we did this one set of pitches with Bob Saget and the two of them, I mean, I was in awe. Every single pitch was exactly the same, but felt completely natural and conversational. Like they had just thought of this joke. They had just tossed it to each other and they didn't even practice that. Having that respect for yourself and what you bring to the room and not just, you know, throwing something together is what I really learned from him. And then also just relationships. I mean, he was friends with everybody from the guy who checked us into uh, driving onto the lot to the assistant, to the janitor. I mean, he'd been in the business so long that everyone knew him and he was friendly with everyone. And he taught me that if you're in, if you're lucky enough to be in the business this long, everybody moves up. And so they will remember you. So be nice to everybody. <laughs> and that always stuck with me. He was also an incredible networker, which I am not. I am an introvert at heart. And so he was always drinking and wanting and dining. And that is a huge part of the business that I don't love. But <laughs> I have found other ways around. Um, I am, you know, I can, I'm better one-on-one. -on -one, so I'd rather have a lunch or something or connect over something else rather than going in and having to like connect while pitching you something. Got it. Um, Got it. But also learning game shows is like boot camp and format. Yes. I mean, you can't miss a detail because they'll be like, well, wait, why do they win if they do this? And, you know, I literally was making up game rules, money ladders. I mean, you name it. I, obstacle courses. Just I had to write a 50 page script of Simon Says Demands once. I mean, <laughs> I learned how to write like scripts. I learned quickie rundowns. I learned, I mean, I, we made these Bibles that were hundreds of pages and I had to create like 16 binders, you know, for the network, every, every picture, every graphic had a match. I mean, and it was just me. I was the only development person. It was just me. It was, you know, an incredible experience. Um, and I ended up leaving there because uh, Phil also was really big into international, you know, being in formats, that's pretty much how you, you know, make money. If you can sell it outside sure. of the U.S. and then sell it back to the U.S., that's right. even better. Yeah. Um, and so I had heard about this job at Fremantle in acquisitions and distribution, and they were looking for somebody who had had a production background and could talk to other producers about trying to get the rights to their shows and distribute them. This sounded amazing to me. I, I got to work with producers, travel the world, go to, you know, the office was in London. I was, I traveled nonstop in 2016. 
but it was a ruse. Nobody can keep their rights in the U.S. And um, <laughs> it was depressing. Yes. That's, uh, that's... <laughs> so I spent, you know, a year just doing like crunching numbers and having to do these really, really stressful high, uh, you know, I'm negotiating with, you know, Harvey Weinstein's lawyer to get the project runway rights. And I, I mean, I was like, I like, this is not me. Like I wasn't good at it. And I was okay with that. I was like, get me back to development. But it, again, that year in acquisitions and learning about international sales and traveling and meeting all those people, um, it was incredible. I still have friends, you know, now all over the world who do incredible work. And I learned about how you actually make money in this business. And I learned about distribution and rights. And so I hated it, but I learned a lot. And I, I get it only helps more in development. All right. So I usually end the show with what to watch. I just finished the uh, last season of The Circle, which you probably don't watch The Circle. Nope, but don't watch it. <laughs> you probably don't watch The Circle. But for people who like reality television, the Circle, yes. you know, it was season two of The Circle on Netflix. I actually think this season was better than the first one. Lots of good twists. I love the transition, love the graphics, and Studio Lambert did a terrific job this season. The casting, I think, was even better. Mm. Spoiler alert, Chloe from Too Hot to Handle was on this season. So it, it just was, it was, it's really, if you like reality television, it's right. really, it's really well done. <laughs> yeah, but hey, it's not for everybody. Um, when is, uh, when are the, the Tulsa Massacre docs on and what, you know, when can they catch them and where? So Legacy of Black Wall Street, um, both episode of Aaron on OWN, but you can stream it on Discovery Plus now. And our Rise Again, Tulsa and Red Summer doc with Nat Geo is airing on June 18th and 19th on Hulu. Okay, terrific. Ashley, thank you so much for doing the show. I really thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. This has been super fun going down memory lane. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I haven't talked about myself that much in a long time. You know, nobody goes out for network drinks anymore. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. Well, soon we'll, we'll have to, to get that going again. And the next time I'm in New York, I will definitely come see you. Yes, please. That's going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, download, and rate it with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Audible, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you have a question, shoot it to me over at no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com. Thank you for listening and thanks to Mike DeLay at Real Voice LA. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.